you may find yourself in the midst of persecution, your faith isn't going to fail. It will endure. You will be rescued. Perseverance in the faith is always evidence of genuine saving faith. Welcome to The Word Unleashed with Tom Pennington. Tom is pastor-teacher at Countryside Bible Church in Southlake, Texas. Persecution. It's been a reality throughout church history and even today in various parts of the world. Have you experienced some form of persecution for the name of Jesus Christ, or do you know someone who has? If widespread persecution comes from either governmental or religious authorities, how will you respond? Hello, I'm Bill Wright, and today Tom brings you part seven of his current series titled, The Future According to Jesus, exploring what Jesus had to say about the end times and his eventual return. Christ told his followers that they would be persecuted if they were faithful in their obedience to him. It's a promise, but why would he make such a promise? And how does Jesus want you to respond to persecution that you may be experiencing or will experience in your own life? Let's find out now as we join our teacher on The Word Unleashed. You know, people live in a certain amount of dread and sort of a sense of impending doom about the reality that the world may in fact at some point end. From the proverbial sort of joke of the guy wearing the sandwich board that says the end is near to the sort of ideas that creep across the culture and permeate the culture the sense that the end is coming is clear. So there is in the background of the human psyche and awareness the reality that at some point the world will end. We don't know when, but we do know this. The world will come to an end. History as we know it will end, this planet will end, because our Lord said so. The process for that could begin tonight, or maybe next week, or maybe next month, or next year, or it could still be a decade away, a century away, or even a thousand years away. We really just don't know. But according to our Lord himself, there is an appointed end. It's coming. He told his disciples about it on late Tuesday afternoon of the Passion Week. As the sun began to set over the city of Jerusalem, Jesus and his disciples were resting on top of the Mount of Olives, looking back across the Kidron Valley to the Temple Mount. In that context, four of Jesus' disciples, the, the really the intimate circle of his disciples, came and privately asked him three questions. They ask him, when will the temple be destroyed that you have just prophesied will happen? Secondly, what are the signs of your coming? And thirdly, what are the signs of the end of the age? Those were their questions. And in a remarkable sermon, Jesus answered all of those questions. Jesus explained to them, and through the inspiration of the Spirit, we have had it revealed to us, what the end will be, what the future will be looks like. Now just to remind you, the sermon that Jesus preaches here to these four disciples 
is organized into four parts. First of all, verses 5 through 13 describes what I've called the beginning of birth pangs. This is the period of time from Christ's life on earth to the midpoint of a future seven-year tribulation. The second part of this sermon comes in verses 14 to 23. It is the great tribulation. The great tribulation period. This is the period from the midpoint of that future seven-year tribulation period to its end. The last three and a half years is typically referred to not as just the tribulation, but as the great tribulation. The third movement in this sermon comes in verse 24 to verse 27. It's the second coming. This happens as an event in history. To bring history as we know it to a conclusion. And then fourthly, the sermon ends, verses 28 to 37, with an exhortation to be alert, to be ready. The events that Jesus describes might be set in motion tonight. They might be set in motion tomorrow, but they will come. Our Lord promised it will happen. Jesus specifically prophesies what will happen in this sermon. He prophesies what will happen from his life on earth through the age in which we live and all the way to the second coming. Now, we have begun our study of just the first part of the sermon, the beginning of birth pangs. That period of time from Jesus' life on earth until the midpoint of that future seven-year tribulation. Let me read it for you again. Mark chapter 13, and I'll begin in verse 3. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are going to be fulfilled? And Jesus began to say to them, See to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he, and will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, Do not be frightened. Those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. But be on your guard. For they will deliver you to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. When they arrest you and hand you over, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by all because of my name, but the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. In this first section of what's called the Olivet Discourse, because it was given on the Mount of Olives, Jesus describes the period that began with his own resurrection 
and will end at the halfway point of the tribulation period. Jesus describes that entire period as the beginning of birth pangs. Notice the end of verse 8. These things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. The birth pangs Jesus predicts here will occur throughout human history. But like contractions in a woman giving birth, these things will occur in relentless and ever-increasing waves of intensity and frequency as we approach the end. Specifically, Jesus identifies several of these birth pangs. First of all, false Christ prophets and predictions. People will come and say, I am the Christ. Prophets will come and prophesy falsely. There will be predictions that are wrong, that the end is now. Jesus says, don't believe them. In verses 7 and the first part of verse 8, Jesus predicts there will be war. There will be war, actual wars. There will be rumors of wars. There will be wars between individual nations, and there will be wars between kingdoms, between great world empires, great world rules. Thirdly, there will be natural disasters. The end of verse 8 gives us those. They include earthquakes all over the globe, devastating famines, and worldwide epidemics of disease, according to Luke. There are a couple of other birth pangs that will occur throughout human history, but again, keep in mind that while they occur throughout human history, they occur in much greater intensity and frequency as we approach the very end. The fourth birth pang that Jesus identifies here is intense persecution. You see that in verses 9 through 13 that we just read together. Now, the persecution that Jesus describes in these verses, he tells us will come primarily from three sources. First of all, it will come from false religion. Look at verse 9. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts and you will be flogged in the synagogues. Jesus warns his followers, in this case the apostles who face this in their lifetimes, as we'll see in a moment, Christians throughout the church age, and those who will come to Christ during the tribulation period, that religious persecution will be a frequent reality. Be on your guard, Jesus says. The Greek word means beware, watch out for a specific danger, a specific hazard. Specifically, what's the danger we're to be alert for? He says in verse 9, for they will deliver you to the courts. The Greek word translated deliver is often used in the New Testament of arresting someone. The word for courts is the plural form of the word Sanhedrin, the great Jewish court, the 70 men who ruled over the nation. There were local versions of this, smaller local versions. It describes local Jewish courts that were connected to each synagogue. The judges in those local synagogue courts had the authority to hear charges of heresy. And when they found a person guilty of such charges of heresy, they had the authority to carry out punishment, and often that included flogging, a punishment allowed by Deuteronomy 25. You can read about it in verses 2 and 3 of Deuteronomy 25. The Mishnah, one of the Jewish documents, records how that flogging prescribed in Deuteronomy 25 was carried out and applied in everyday Jewish 
legal practice. The beating was inflicted with a strap made of calf leather divided into four smaller leather straps, and then even smaller leather straps were woven through those four to make them stronger. Deuteronomy 25.3 says that the strokes could be no more than 40. So Jewish law demanded that those carrying out the flogging be flogged themselves if they exceeded the 40 strokes that are mentioned in Deuteronomy 25. So in normal practice, just in case they miscounted, they would never give 40 strokes. They always stopped at 39 That's why in 2 Corinthians 11, Paul says, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Five times in synagogue courts, Paul was found guilty of heresy because of the view he held of Christ and was flogged. Thirteen of the 39 strokes were delivered to the chest. Twenty-six of them were delivered to the back in normal Jewish practice according to the Mishnah. Jesus told his disciples that day to expect religious persecution. They would be found guilty of heresy and they would be beaten severely. Luke adds that Jesus added this, that they would also be thrown into prison. Luke 21, 12. Jesus warned his disciples that all who would become his followers, for them religious persecution would frequently be a reality. And didn't that happen? If you're familiar with the early chapters of Acts, in Acts 4 and 5, shortly after the ascension, the apostles are arrested, brought before Jewish courts, and in chapter 5, verse 40, all the apostles received the flogging I was just describing. 39 lashes. In Acts chapter 8 and chapter 9, A man named Saul comes along, and he ravages the church. He arrests Christians. He has them beaten. He imprisons them, and even has some killed. Our Lord's words came to fruition very early, and it has continued throughout church history. Tragically, throughout the history of the church, the worst persecution to come against the church has come from the religious, from false religion. Do you know that's still true in the world today? Certainly, Christians are persecuted by secularists. They're persecuted by governments, as we'll see in a moment. But some of the major persecution, even in today's world, that comes against the church and our brothers and sisters around the world comes from false religion. When I travel to Russia, most of the persecution the church there encounters doesn't come from the secular authorities. It doesn't even come from the secular people in atheistic culture. It comes from the Russian Orthodox Church. The same thing is true around the world. As our own country begins to drift, or continues, I should say, to drift from its Judeo-Christian roots, I think we can expect persecution of various forms to come. Don't be surprised if that persecution comes from cults, from Roman Catholicism, from liberal Protestantism, from acceptable forms of religion. Jesus also promised that persecution would come against us from another source, not only from false religion, but from secular authorities. Look at the second half of verse 9. And you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. 
Literally, the text says, you will be made to stand. In other words, you're going to be brought before the secular authorities accused of a crime as a criminal. The word for governors describes Roman officials like Pilate and Festus and Felix in the book of Acts. The word for kings describes less important potentates, men like Herod Agrippa and Herod Antipas, local kings over smaller regions. Jesus' point here is that his followers would face persecution from official secular authorities. Why? Well, notice there is both a human reason, Jesus gives, and a divine reason. Notice, for my sake, verse 9 says, literally, on account of me, because of our loyalty to Christ, we will sometimes face persecution before the secular authorities. And you know, if you're informed at all, that there are literally thousands of Christians right now who are being persecuted in various ways around the globe. And when it comes to secular authorities, it's because of their loyalty to Christ. But notice, I love this, there's also a divine side. God has a purpose in this. Notice verse 9 says, as a testimony to them. God has arranged that official persecution will come against his people so that the secular authorities might hear the truth of the gospel. And some of them, according to the book of Acts, will come to genuine faith in Christ. So persecution will come. But the question is, why? Why does persecution come? Well, there are a number of reasons given in the Bible. Our Lord mentioned that they'll hate you because they hated me, and they hated me because I was the light that exposed the darkness of their sin. I'm I'm reminded often of that encounter with the citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot. Right after unrighteous Lot, and I know he's righteous before the Lord, but he was unrighteous in his living pattern, right after unrighteous Lot offered his daughters to the men of Sodom, and instead of allowing them to ravage the angels who were visiting with them, what did they say to Lot? Wait a minute. Who are you to be a judge over us? In other words, by not catering to our preferences, you're sitting in judgment. And that's the way the world responds to us as well. But Jesus gives another reason for persecution here. Why does persecution often come on believers? What often starts the persecution of Christians? One of the reasons in verse 10. The gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Buried right here in the heart of a passage about persecution is the spread of the gospel. Persecution often starts when Christians attempt to fulfill the mission of evangelism because the message of the gospel is offensive because it says you are spiritually blind and you are spiritually dead and you are reduced to a beggar before God. You have nothing to offer him and your only hope is to throw yourself on his mercy. That's offensive. You remember Jesus gave that message to his hometown synagogue in Nazareth. He said, I've come to to set free the prisoners, and I've come to, to give sight to the blind. He was talking spiritually. And what was their response to that? Oh, it's a wonderful hometown. Boy, come home. We're thrilled to have... No, they became violent. Tried to kill him. 
So often when believers engage in the same mission of evangelism that Jesus did, it exposes them to the same rejection that he faced. Sometimes, you know, people in North Texas are nice and you try to share the gospel with them, you try to bring up your faith and and they're polite about it, perhaps not open, not receptive, but polite. There are other times, and we saw this in, in California especially, when people are angry. Sometimes persecution comes from false religion. Sometimes it comes from secular authorities. And often it comes because of the offense of the gospel. Now when this persecution comes from either secular authorities or from official religious authorities, how are we to respond? Look at verse 11. When they arrest you and hand you over, Do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Now folks, this text has been terribly abused by students, by lazy teachers and preachers. I've actually heard pastors say something like this, you know, I don't really need to prepare my my messages I just get up and the Holy Spirit tells me what to say. That's not what this is about. This text has nothing to do with the normal teaching and preaching of God's Word. He's talking about your defense when you are arrested and brought before either religious or secular authorities. When that happens, he says, don't worry about what you'll say. The Holy Spirit will help you in that moment. And if you doubt that, read the book of Acts. It's amazing what the Lord allowed those in the midst of persecution, how he allowed them to respond. Read about Peter and John and Paul, and you'll be reminded that this promise has been fulfilled in the distant past. Read the story of the martyrs. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs, and you'll be amazed at the power of the response those who were facing persecution and death had. And that's because Jesus is fulfilling his promise. In the midst of that defense, It's not you who speaks, but the Holy Spirit through you. So expect persecution from false religion. Expect it from the secular authorities. Tragically, the third source of persecution is much harder to deal with. It comes from personal relationships. Look at verse 12. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. It's tragic, isn't it? Persecution and hatred will even come against Jesus' followers from their most intimate relationships. That of brothers and sisters and parents and children and uncles and aunts and so forth. Close friends. You come to Christ and your friends are no longer your friends. Why? Why do people who say they love us turn against us because of our faith? Well, there are any number of reasons. Perhaps out of hatred for the gospel. Perhaps out of personal jealousy and resentment. Perhaps out of a desire at some points to save their own lives. Or perhaps to win approval and enhance their reputation. And and the list goes on and on. But regardless, brother will betray brother, parents their children, and children their parents. Why? Ultimately, the reason is that our spiritual loyalties run far deeper than our blood relationships. 
Read John 8. I won't take you there right now, but you remember in John 8, Jesus says that every human being either has God as his father or Satan as his father. He's either a child of God or a child of the devil. That's it. Those are the only two choices. You fall into one of those two categories. That's Tom Pennington here on The Word Unleashed with part seven of his series, The Future According to Jesus. Tom will have part eight for you on our next broadcast, and we hope you'll join us then. Well, we'd like you to know that Tom has a new book out titled The God Who Hears, a book of pastoral prayers. It features 31 scripture readings and accompanying pastoral prayers. Tom's book is available for purchase right now online at thewordunleashed.org. As always, it's our prayer that you'll be enriched by the expository teaching of God's Word here on The Word Unleashed. We'd love to hear your story and how God is enriching you in your walk with Christ through this ministry. Write to us, won't you? Our address is listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's listeners at thewordunleashed.org. Or you can call us at 1-877-577-WORD. And remember to connect with us on social at The Word Unleashed. The Word Unleashed is made possible because of the prayers and financial gifts of individuals like you. Please consider partnering with us. You can find out how to do that by visiting thewordunleashed.org. Again, that's thewordunleashed.org. And now for Tom Pennington and the entire team, I'm Bill Wright. Thanks for listening to The Word Unleashed, exalting God's glory explaining God's truth.